This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking... But I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. So, neurodiversity is something we're all faced with. Some of us just know how to hide it better. Because they either feel it less or they're more scared. So to be neurodiverse is actually, um, and to show that, is very brave. And it takes a lot of guts. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, and like many of us, I'm keeping myself socially distant, so apologies if things seem a little bit different for the time being. But we've got a load of new podcasts ready to keep you entertained over these difficult times, so be sure to listen out for our latest episode every Monday. And with over 100 episodes for you to catch up on, hopefully we should be able to help take your mind off the things. Back to this week's episode, Dr Camilla Pang is a bioinformatician who was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder when she was eight years old. Her book, Explaining Humans, is a guide to navigating life, love and relationships using the lessons she's learned in her scientific career so far. In it, she draws on examples from how the different proteins in the human body can reflect the different roles in a social group, to the way how light refracts through a prism helping her to break down fear into something more manageable. She sat down with our editorial assistant Amy Barrett and discusses her current work using disease and cancer data, along with machine learning methods to find patterns that can be used in healthcare and lead to the development of therapies. She also explains how her neurodiversities have affected the way she works. Okay, so Explaining Humans is out 12th of March, uh, published by Viking. And if you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, what, what do our listeners need to know about Dr Camilla Pang? Um... The first one is open-ended questions aren't her forte. 
Um, but I do think that's quite important to note because this whole book highlights why open-ended questions are hard because um, I am on the autistic spectrum. I also have ADHD, um, but those don't define me. I don't fall victim to my neurodiversities. Um, they empower me and they I wouldn't have been able to do my PhD and written this book, um, Explaining Humans, um, without them. So um, that's kind of me in summary. Can you give us a brief description of what your book, Explaining Humans, is about? So it's my attempt um, to write a manual for myself um, from the pieces of information I have assembled together um, as a child. Um, I didn't know I was writing it. It was more of a notes I collected, a bit like bubbles in a jumper. You're a little bit embarrassed by them. Um, but one of the main uh, reasons why I wrote it is because I couldn't, I couldn't not write it. I had to write to survive. And I liked assembling notes together and piecing information together that... Um, for me, enabled me to, to decode and connect with humans. Um, it's also an attempt to make um, science visible for people, as it actually made people visible um, to me. So, yeah, I can be myself with science. It's my language and it's something that I want to share with people because it's how I understand them. And so who is it for as, as a reader? Who do you see this book for? Um, originally, um, when I gathered my notes and I, when I, and I wrote it, which I didn't realise I wrote the book about a month ago, because it's, it's just one of those processes, um, I wrote it for myself. But to be honest, I think, thinking about it, I've had visions of me um, wanting to give it to my mother when I was little. I wanted to write it so that I can one day be like, here, mum, <laughs> this is what's happened. <laughs> this is why I'm, this is what's been happening when I couldn't communicate, and now I can. I want to write it for her. And so you, you've sort of said just then why you sort of wanted to write it, but, but why now? Why did you decide to, to write this book? Is there anything that happened to make you want to write? Um... It was quite an impulsive thing, as men, as best things in life are, mm -hmm. and it, it wasn't as constructive, it was more reflexive and something that I realised, because I wrote this book um, all before the age of 20, and I didn't notice that uh, my notes were very much different to the ones before I was 20, up until I was 25, and I thought, hmm, it's been five years, and they're a little bit different, they're a bit more nuanced, they use lots of different types of science and, you know, and some art, and then I realised that in order to move on from the notes I'm writing today, I need to somehow gather the ones I've written as a teenager and put them somewhere, and I didn't realise they were useful until other people had the same struggles as me, and I thought, maybe this can help people. Yeah. And out of all of the things, what do you think is the, the biggest lesson that science has taught you? Oh, science is still teaching me. <laughs> um, it's not some, this is one of the reasons why I'm in love with it, because it's not um, just a concrete thing. It's something that is um, ever-evolving, and so are people. And to be honest, it's, um, it's a vehicle for my understanding and helped me make connections. It was my crutch and how I decoded um, and communicated with my species. That's always nice, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, yeah, and it's very fluid, science, and that's one of the lessons it has taught me. Um, because 
like I said, it's evolving. There are some things that are, you know, you know, very much established, but I like to be on the cutting edge of it. And I think that inadvertently makes me more fluid as a person and less um, rigid, which I, I crave. I, I crave to be able to know my place and to be able to have science hold my hand while I navigate people is, is great. So is there really any science behind my failed relationships? I don't like the word failed. I think it's a very binary way of thinking because um, I even mentioned this in, in chapter one where it's, um, you know, it's this box thinking. It's either one or the other. You fail or you, you know, succeed. But evolution is a bit more flexible than that. Um, so a failure in one context is often a treasure in the next. And that's, that's actually kind of nice because it gives us that wiggle room we need and that open-mindedness to be like, you know what, let's cut ourselves some slack. Um, if it's not working, it's not working. And we are all evolving. And to be able to evolve together is great, but to evolve um, separately and through different means is also great. It's, it's what we, um, it's our energetic potentials as, as people. And that's, so the science behind failed relationship is merely a matter of um, divergent evolution. Divergent evolution. So, um, so in science, we um, so you either have like you know evolution and you evolve together from different places and you kind of like come together holding hands, and that's called convergent evolution. And um, whereas divergent evolution is you know just as me and my sister, we've come from the same place, but we've come but we evolve in different paths. So this is something that I use. Um, I think I mentioned it. I think I think I might have mentioned it in chapter eight. But um, yeah, it's how I see things. You can't help the inevitable. You just have to just be yourself and, you know, hope for the best. Um, thank you. Um, and, you know, personally, but I think for everyone, the human connection is something that we, we all struggle with. Um, what can science teach us in that respect? It's all going to be okay. <laughs> Basically, just... It's all going to be okay because you are you, and as long as you make yourself whole, then you are an evolutionary module that is capable of interacting with lots of different partners, lots of different people and situations. And I think that's one of the parallels I make in the second chapter about how to embrace your weird, that um, not only is weird wonderful, it's also subjective, and it's about being able to make yourself whole and um, I guess protein, you know, soluble, <laughs> to um, move about um, life as an independent unit. And my mum always referred to that unit as being cooked. <laughs> cooked, like you're cooked, you know, you're ready to go. So, ready to be served. Ready to be served. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is there a time when we can use uh, science to help us make decisions? You mentioned machine learning principles in the book. Yeah, so um, the whole book is about being able to make decisions and elucidating some kind of psychology. Each chapter offers information on that. But specifically, um, so the first chapter mentions about different ways of kind of visualizing what your situation is, um, such as clustering and, you know, and a classification. But the ones which resonate with me most today is in, I think it's chapter seven, I can't sure remember. Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> it's, it's called um, How Not... Um, it's called um, How to Find Your Goals. Um, and I talk about a gradient descent algorithm. 
Um, and how what that basically means is to acknowledge the situation and future projections of it via a landscape and the ability to kind of simulate which solutions are most best for that, um, you know, and which ones seem the best for that short term or long term can differ. And there's lots of different machine learning algorithms that kind of, you know, iterate, you know, they kind of walk along the landscape to find solutions. So um, I do... Um, I do explain that in, in the book and it will become clearer because I, I don't want to end up reading out the whole chapter to you. But in essence, um, yes, machine learning inherently is based on psychology. It's what, we're trying, it's what we're trying to do. It's the point of it. It's trying to mimic the human brain and then scale it up to lots of data so that we can gather some kind of insight and intuition, much like a human, because humans are great at... Um, these complex, convoluted algorithms that enable us to have a 4D experience of the world. Machines are a little bit, little, they're a little bit thick, um, and that's why they frustrate us so much. But they're fast, and they can deal with lots of different data. They, they, they're so effective because they can learn fast. With humans, take a little bit longer, but we're more, more accurate in in in, in how we um, come up with decisions. Um, but yes, I do mention that um, extensively in different chapters. And you've you've mentioned the word or sort of the term box thinking. What, what does that mean? Uh, box thinking is just um, binary thinking, side of that or this. You write, you know, I call them um, um, isms thinking. Oh yeah, you're you're this. It's very much it's very categorical, and you classify people according to these box categories. With and you're like, how do they link up to each other? But they don't. And I think to have a bit more of an open mind and be open, you know, be open to the different ways in which things can be related is more of a tree-based um, approach where you know that everything's at some point interconnected. You just got to find your way through. So. Box thinking is great in making a decision there and then. Brilliant. Because you don't want to end up going, oh, yeah, it could be this. Yeah, you could do that all day, every day. Mm. But you do need box thinking, which are basically the fruits of your intellectual labor. That's what I like to think. In the book, there's a couple of times where you sort of um, get us to think about ourselves in different almost categories. So we've got the different um, proteins that we find in the body, the different roles proteins have but also um, the different, uh, for example, bonds that you find. There's, there's this kind of categories that are defined in the book. But psychology has a lot of models for putting these people in boxes and categories, thinking of things like Myers-Briggs. Do you have one that you subscribe to? Are, are they useful? To be honest, I think the inherent adaptability we have as people um, to describe a single person within, like, a four letter metric is reductionist to say the least and I think to know the limitations of each psychological model and the uses and limitations but you know for different environments um, is very is good but I wouldn't try and encompass my personality into that kind of singularity because that only would be limiting me as a person but it's also affecting my native behavior so Myers-Briggs is all right um, but it's very general it doesn't take into account context and I mentioned that in the book and I think it's a very it's widely used um, and it's something that is you know it's easily easily done online it's free but and it describes the general tendencies. I'm not a psychologist, 
Um, there are probably loads of different ones. You know, there's a Herman Brain model. There's, there's, you know, you could ask, you know, just Google it. But at the end of the day, all what they all have in common is you've got, you know, they describe different sides of people. And it's just knowing how you are. And they don't account for evolvability. You have to keep taking them. But then again, would your, would your answers to the next round of questions be affected by what you did before? So this is why I think this is good if you want to know how you will respond in a specific situation and not encompass you as a person. And you refer in the book to neurotypical and neurodiverse. Um, can you just explain what those terms mean? Um, so everyone is neurodiverse. No, there's no, there's, honestly, even though you try to be square, you're not square. I'm very sorry to tell you <laughs> it doesn't exist because you are literally a species on this planet um, subject to evolution and you're going to evolve. And to, um, to admit to that and to behave as your natural self is sometimes quite hard in these kind of social constraints. So everyone is neurodiverse. In terms of neurotypical, I think what people would more commonly refer it to is something that is you're not yet diagnosed with a mental health variance. I don't call disorder because I don't believe in this whole mental disorder when it's something that is clearly imposed by an environment. So neurodiversity is something we're all faced with. Some of us know, just know how to hide it better mm-hmm. because they either feel it less or they're more scared. So to be neurodiverse is actually, um, and to show that, is very brave, and it takes a lot of guts. Mm. And it's a term that's quite closely related to like autism and yeah. Asperger's, right? Yes, it is. ADHD, bipolar, um, schizophrenia, all lots of different types of um, psychological uh, impositions um, that can affect you. And what you'd find with these mental health disorders or um, variances, sorry, um, is that a lot of the struggles that they um, have are mainly due to the the intolerances of their environment. If left alone, I'm normal. I'm fine. Happy as Larry. But if I have to sit at my desk, you know, in a certain, you know, way all day, I'll be absolutely nuts. I actually sit under my desk and I've got a standing desk and I read under there. And, but the, peop- the people at my work are very accepting of that. So what I'd want um, neurotypicals to, to learn about neurodiversity right. is um, just to accept and embrace it. They're probably jealous. They probably want to send it to my desk. <laughs> and that's, that's one way you've said about being neurodiverse, changing the way that you work. Is, is there any other ways that it actually impacts your, your career, your life? Uh, right. I'm speaking from my personal experience and everyone who has, um, well, everyone basically, or those that have a diagnosed mental health variance will have their own experience. But personally, um, I find logistics really hard. Um, I get really bad anxiety. But I've got that under control. I mean, all these things I have... Um, have I've made into something positive because it's a force to be reckoned with and it's an untapped resource. You just have to know how to train it and to use it and not be hindered by you being an odd shape because it's easy to feel squeezed and trapped. Um, 
but it can affect my focus. I know I know at the the, you know, the times of day that I focus best. Um, you just need to know your shape and make the most of it. And I might not fit at a you know nine to five desk. I'm, I might be you know focus really well at six a.m. until twelve, and then all afternoon I won't. It it, it depends. Um, it's about being adaptable to your own needs, and I think that can be said um, for, for everyone, not just being neurodiverse, but um, ev- everyone. Um, so, yeah, and, but also in terms of my Asperger's, um, I guess I'll tell you a bit more about that later on. Um, I wonder, thinking about how autism appears in, in pop culture, how do you feel when you see it portrayed in the media? I think that the... Okay, one line summary. It's very male orientated, very white um, uh, culture, and there's lots of head banging on walls. And I think that's because, um, for both supporters and um, people with autism, I think it's due to the fact that we don't know what it looks like in any other form because it's very hard to diagnose. It's symptomatic, it's very varied, and those that have it, particularly um, females, they're known to mask their symptoms. And so trying to you know, get out of them is really hard. Lucky for me, I was diagnosed at age eight, um, or eight or nine. But, um, for example, but then someone says to me, oh, uh, Millie, um, oh, you don't look autistic, as if, as if, like, I'm tired that day. And it's actually, I know that they mean well, so I don't, I, so I don't make a fuss. I just be like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I just have, bi- I give an indifferent answer. Um, I've rehearsed, obviously. Um, But it's degrading to say I don't look autistic because it's not something that I have. It's something that I am. This is my human shape. I am autistic and I have a different shape such that I I experience life differently to the point where it can hinder but also enhance your experience. So in terms of its portrayal in the media... Um, I think it's it's not quite accurately represented in terms of how varied it can be. And I'm really hoping that this book sheds a light on how varied it can be, but also anchor it down to a common psychological route that explains why you are feeling, A, that little bit weird, or B, out of place, or C, um, to explain the humour that you are. Um, and there's a fair amount of self-diagnosis when it comes to autism. Mm. Do you have any views on that? Does it have consequences? Um, self-diagnosis. Um, what, just by reading or, the, or by the internet? It depends how it's done, to be honest. Um, self-diagnosis, you, you have to be careful because you don't want to end up reading the wrong thing and thinking that you're one thing going, oh, no. You know, it's, it's, it's good to have an expert opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, it is very hard to get a diagnosis, not because it's hard to diagnose in the first place, but it's also um, very hard to even get th- therapy on the NHS because it's such a high demand. Uh, it's just, you know, the system is, is, is not as efficient as it could be. Um, and I think because of that, it's made people be overlooked and suffering in silence. And I don't like that. But I am hoping that this book will bring them into light. That's the most important thing. I want people to, I want people who feel hidden away and like I this I was not made for this world. I was not made for these times to read it and go, 
oh yeah, maybe maybe I am. And for them to step out out of the corner and, you know, go into the light. And self-diagnosis can be, can be limiting at times, but you don't have to self-diagnose to feel like you belong. Um, why is it that autism is often closely linked with ADHD? Oh, they are a marriage made in heaven, but they live in hell. Um, they are counterparts, to be honest, because ADHD is a kind of chaotic, unpredictable, sporadic wildfire that spins outwards and it's everything that makes you feel alive and it's messy and it's not routine it's fluid and ad and um, asd um is very is more rigid more focused more um it likes routine it's quite inwards and which is it's very introspective and from this is from my experience that is um just trying to stratify why they're both so different from each other and they save each other a lot of the time because um, they're a yin and yang. Most of the time I feel like I'm a third wheeler. Um, I really I really do. I'm, I'm mediating both of these psychologies simultaneously and I'm like, I just want to make a cup of tea. But the good thing is that they do complement each other. When I go into hyperfocus mode, I've also got my Asperger's to push that through further and I can get, I get stuff done fast. But the question is, what, what do I need to do by when? If I know what and how and why, I'm there. ADHD can make you feel lost, but it, but, um, and so can autism. But together, somehow, you're, you, you find your way through. <laughs> it's, mag- it's almost like magic. But they are closely linked. Um, I think it's very important to highlight the intersection of anxiety. So um, they can one can save another, but also they can um, act together to really provide a, you know, horsepower of anxiety. And that can be hard to deal with. Um, you don't know what you're going to be anxious about that day, but you know that your mind is spinning in both directions. But you, you have to just learn to train it. It's literally what you've got to do. It's, it's, it's energy at the end of the day. Mm. It's a bit of a privilege. And do you remember your own diagnosis? What did it mean for you? To be honest, it didn't really mean anything to me. I was pretty happy just doing my own thing and carried on doing my own thing. Um, it was mainly for my mother and my family and my mentors to help support me so they could Google and research what was going on and how best they could help. And um, that was um, absolutely instrumental in me um, functioning and learning like a normal teenager. And then me kind of replicating these um, strategies put in place in my adult life. So actually it didn't mean anything to me because I didn't understand it. I, it was not something that, it's another label. I don't, it's another ism or a label for neurotypicals to have to um, support people with neurodiversity. And was there anything that was so different about getting, obviously, your autism diagnosis so young, eight or nine, um, and then your ADHD diagnosis so recently? To be honest, I think because their symptoms do overlap and, you know, I'm hyperactive generally, as, as it is, um, as a person, you know, not, you know that's, might not do to my autism, but that's just me generally. I think the ADHD um, kind of got over, overlooked um, and a lot of the support was based on me having um, autism, which is fine. I mean, great. I only noticed I had ADHD when I um, 
went into a job where I had to be a, a shape, a certain shape. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I fit in this shape. I thought, why, why, why? And I, it was almost like a, a self-diagnosis based on um, me running to occupational health at lunchtime, crying, knocking on the door. I'm going to be really frank here. Um, and then I talked to them and they were like, um, you've basically got ADHD. And I'm like, yeah, thought so. Because the panic attacks were different. And when you have autism, your panic attacks make you spiral inwards and you want to hide in a corner and, or put something over your head, covering all senses. But it's from overstimulation. But an ADHD panic attack is actually from understimulation. And you spin outwards because you want to move and you're restless. Your mind is restless. And when I had to be in that certain shape, every fibre of my body was trying to push out. And there's only so many lunchtime walks that can kind of quench that um, cognitive thirst to just burst out energy. So, yeah, so I, it's interesting because I didn't realise I had ADHD until I realised I didn't no longer fit anymore. And that wasn't because of my autism. It was because of something else. Mm, good job. Yeah, so that's probably why I was so late. But that, that being said, I've not actually been formally diagnosed with ADHD and I've tried to get I've tried to get one but it's really hard work really hard work and even I even thought about getting it done privately but it's very expensive so I haven't done it and also um, I've got the support I need but it is important to note that people who are suffering and need that diagnosis um, they are probably going to be struggling with getting that diagnosis it's, it's really hard to get that on the NHS. Not only, obviously, availability, but diagnosing it. So my advice is, if you know you've got something wrong, live it up and don't hide it because people need to know. Thank you. Um, you're, you mentioned your, your job, that you specialise in translational bioinformatics. That term means absolutely nothing to me. What, what is that? Bioinformatics is quite a new field because it's been such a big influx of um, data. And so um, specifically bioinformatics deals with biological data from the labs. Someone actually said to me, what's the point of bioinformatics if you can just do it by hand? And I'm like, nothing. Because we have so much data and so many patterns within that, both obvious and not so obvious, we need a way of processing that data, putting it somewhere and making sense of it. So this is what bioinformatics, um, specifically, you know, I deal with clinical data and cancer data and lots of different disease data that we have in order to find patterns so that we can find therapies. And these might be, um, you know, there's lots of different types of data that you can do this with. Um, translational, um, in this context, specifically means regarding, you know, clinical outcome and... Um, and how can it affect, um, you know, healthcare? So that's why I like it. It gives me that. Um, I, I'm a biochemist, and I um, it's basically biochemistry on the computer for medicine. Mm. So that's great. It's good enough for me. Um, and so bioinformatics. Can you put that into context? How how does that affect the the wider world? Science, I think, generally, especially those that code, is very hidden. Um, it kind of goes on without you noticing it, but when without it, we wouldn't be able to elucidate the um, you know the results and the discoveries that we've that we've made from all this data that we've harnessed. So it's a it's a bit of a process that 
a lot of people depend upon, but they they don't really know that it's there. I think that's a bit of a shame um, because people work so hard and their minds are incredible. Like some of the people at work, I'm like, your mind is awesome. And mm -hmm. to be able to um, shed a light on that, I'm really hoping that um, bioinformatics and science and biochemistry have more of, a, of an awareness about how instrumental they are, not just making you alive, but also healthcare and you know e you know renewable energies there's so there's such a big outreach of how bioinformatics and biochemistry can affect can affect your life so i'm hoping that people when they read the book they can google all the you know bits of stuff they're like oh what's that oh what's what's game theory or what's what's hemoglobin my favorite protein sorry um yeah i'm hoping that it will stir curiosity so that people can find a bit more about science and this subject that is a little bit hidden. It's quite new though, so. And you, you talked about outreach. You, you work both in the lab and you do a lot of outreach. Which do you prefer and why? I love both and I wouldn't have it any other way. I designed it such that much like the different sides of science I like to assemble together, I like the different types of way of interacting with different sides of science in order to reach um, my arms out and gather them all. Um, I like to say to my friends that I'm spider-shaped. Um, it's actually a, a, an analogy I got from my mum because um, we were talking about artists and Louise, Bo Louise Bourgeois and she did this art installation piece called Bon Maman. Actually, it's probably just called Maman. Bon Maman's a jam, sorry. Um, so it's actually called Maman. <laughs> and um, it's about this massive spider installation that you, when you look at it, you kind of feel a little bit, ooh, a bit haunted. But when she gave me this book, it's about being able to tie lots of different pieces together via a web and be in control of them. And I like to think that I've got my main job that I re that really that really feeds me and I you know I, I feel really happy there. But I also have side projects that I do on my evenings and my weekends. And I love that because not only is it a source of creativity, inspiration, it also enables me to, to, to practice lots of different things without that pressure of having to, to perform. And also it's having lots of different eggs in lots of different baskets that they can feed into one another when need be. So this is one of the reasons why I like um, to have a main job and different side projects, because outreach is it's just sharing the love, isn't it? Um, and you mentioned in the book that you have synesthesia. Um, can you explain what that is and, and how it presents itself for you? Yeah, so synesthesia, um, it's... So it's a um, it's not it's not a mental health um, disorder or variance or whatever have you. It's just a way that you perceive the world. And, and specifically, um, my senses are very very heightened, and that's due to my autism. That's one of the things that a lot of people with autism have is a sensory overload. But it's a bit different to that because you associate colours with words and smells, and everything's cross-linked. And so you're like, yeah, but that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't you're completely right. So whenever I see a picture or I see like words, all of them have their personalities, colors, smells, and they can get really confusing. But it's okay, because I've got my ways of dissecting what means what, um, which is one of the reasons why reading fiction is actually quite hard for me, but also getting on the tube, because you can, it's not like a form of delusion, it's just more of a, an extra thing that you sense. And I mentioned it in the in the book, in the fears chapter, the chapter where I look at how to um, refract 
or spread out different emotions so that you can process them because when they when when they hit you like a white light you just don't know what to do with them and the one one of the main reasons of me um using that parallel was because i saw emotions very vividly with color and with their own personality situations have their own personality and their color and from that it really helped me i won't say label but kind of um cluster what was what but how it manifests me is um color and sounds and tastes and, and smells it just heightens that it makes the experience more 4d <laughs> basically um I think that leads into my next question, my final question, which is, can art influence science? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, funny you should say that because I'm one of my, well, a couple of my side projects that I'm doing um, is communicating the parallels between um, art and science. I'm not going to go into it too much. I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger there. But um, yes, they are both in it's both in art, complementing science with it communicating what science is trying to do, but also on like an algorithmic level, and how using you know the different strategies used in the creative industry and those used dealing with things on a micromolecular level are very much paralleled. So um, yes. Yes, and art can influence science because both of them root from creativity. Both have an innate chaos that they're trying to um, find patterns therein, and they're very much complementary. So art is top down and science is bottom up. That's all I'm going to tell you for now. Well, thank you ever so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. That was Camilla Pang, whose book Explaining Humans is out now. Just to reassure you that the team here at BBC Science Focus are still working hard to bring you the magazine and we're offering a half-price subscription so you can get it delivered to your door and save any unnecessary trips to the shops. Head over to buysubscriptions.com forward slash 2020 to take up this great offer. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.